Blog Talk Radio. For the Bobby Eaton Show, giving you information you'll want to know, speaking on issues affecting us all, and music for the soul. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. 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 Hello, everyone. Hey, and welcome to the Bobby Eaton Show. This is where we tell our stories our way. And today is Monday, and uh, we're going to be talking about a few things. Meanwhile, I just want to let you know that we're here every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, and on Saturdays from 12 to 2. And if you need to contact us, all you need to do is dial this number right here. Okay, I'm going to give it to you. It is 832 443 9499. Again, that number is 832-443-9499. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Also, on Thursday nights, we got the Juice Radio Show. Young people coming in here, and they're doing uh, radio their way. And tune into the Juice, headed up by Ramal, the hometown heat, right out of Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, I guess everybody's heard about the Let's see, the shooting that took place in Dayton, Ohio, where nine people are dead and 27 people are injured. And um, it's, that's just awful that we got stuff like that going on in our country today where people are just taking people's lives you know, for no reason. And it's mass shootings and just going crazy. And uh, we got to stop all of this, you know. It's getting out of hand. America's getting bad, y'all. Things are happening. And I think since this president's been in um, office right here, a lot of bad things are starting to really, really happen. And uh, we just need to uh, <clears throat> find some ways how to stop all this foolishness, ignorance, you know, and he's saying some crazy stuff, you know. So I don't know. This uh, We just have to take it as it comes. Well, I'm going to be playing some music um, and going to be playing one of my previous shows. Uh, this particular show I'm getting ready to play is The System of Incarcerated People in Prison with Richard Baxter and Demaria Monday. We're going to play that, and so you can listen to that, okay? You're on the Bobby Eaton Show where we tell our stories our way. For the Bobby Eaton Show, giving you information you'll want to know, speaking on issues affecting us all, and music for the soul. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby the Mom Show. It's the Bobby the Mom Show. Hello, world. Good afternoon. Good evening. Hey, and welcome to the Bobby Eaton Show. This is where we tell our stories our way, and that's the only way I know how to do it. You know, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 6 p.m. 
Central Standard Time, and on Saturdays from 12 to 2 p.m. Central Standard Time. All right, y'all, we got a great topic going on tonight. We're going to be talking to some uh, friends, and uh, we're going to be talking about the system of incarcerated people in prison. Richard Baxter, Damaria Mundy, and friends, you know, Alex Alexander's in the house, so we're going to be talking to them, so you can dial a number now, or text some family members and friends, 646-716-5525, and don't forget to press that one button. You know, this has been a real big topic. Uh, I saw it on CBS News with Gail King and some of the rest of the people on there. They were talking about Oklahoma the most incarcerated people in the world, you know, our state here in Oklahoma. First, I thought it was just the women, but now they're saying it's the men too. So these privately owned prisons are collecting and making money off the system. So it's all about the system. So we're going to be talking about it, you know. You know, for those of you who not who don't understand, you know, a prison, also known as a correctional facility, jail, you know, penitentiary, detention center, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, is a facility in which inmates are forcibly, forcibly, uh, uh, what am I going to say, confined and denied a variety of freedoms under the authority of the state, you know, so that's what's uh, defined as a, a prison. But I think there's some unjust cases taking place in our prison system, you know, to that we need to uh, really look at and take a, tell them really take a good look at, you know, because um, there's some crazy stuff going on out there. And I'm like, oh, kind of ticks me off, you know what I mean, to uh, see what's happening with our prison system. So we're going to take a, take a break and um, we're going to come right back with uh, Richard Baxter and uh, Maria Monday, you know, and Alex Alexander. And uh, so stick around. Like I said, tell your family members, tell your friends. You're on a Bobby Eaton show because we're going to just tell it our way over here. So we want you to do that, okay? All right. Stick around. Use our platform to promote today's fears while inspiring tomorrow's. And we super serve our local community while helping you serve the world. We are Eaton Media Services, a full-service media company providing promotion, videography, record services, and more. Connect with us today to find out how we can help you entertain, empower, and inform at EatonMediaServices.com. Hi, I'm Denise Parker with Midtown Embroidery. We do it all from any type of promotional, from screen printing, embroidery, school uniforms, Greek lettering, workwear, monogramming. There's no job too big or too small and no location too far. Let us be your one-stop shop. We're located at 2808 East 15th Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 74104. Our phone number is 918-982-3254. Our email address is denise.tulsamidtown at gmail.com. Thank you. Hi, I'm Denise Parker with Midtown Embroidery. We do it all from any promotional screen printing, embroidery, school uniforms, Greek lettering, workwear, monogramming. 
There's no job too big or too small and no location too far. Let us be your one-stop shop. We're located at 2808 East 15th Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 74104. Our phone number is 918-982-3254. Our email address is denise.tulsa at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tulsa Midtown Embroidery. If your credit starts with a three, four, five, or six, this is for you. Did you know that it's costing you to have bad credit? You can't get qualified for that house or apartment and you're paying high interest rates. Along with paying high car insurance, and it may be costing you that job that you really want. What are you waiting on? Take more of a holistic approach. Pick up the phone and call the Credit Shiro at 832-642-1554 or text CAMP to 76626. With 13 amazing services, we restore and repair generations to come. Once again, call the Credit Shiro at 832-642-1554 or text CAMP to 76626. If you know better, you do better. Only the Credit Shiro can help you to save the day. The Juice Radio Show with Jay Boogie, Thickums, Willie Will, Double M, Get It Indy, and Ramal, the hometown heat. Oh, yeah, that's a Juice Radio Show every Thursday night, 6 p.m. Hit it up by my main man, Ramal, the hometown heat. Young people doing radio their way. And, uh, boy, they be doing I'll be learning a lot of stuff off those young people over there, you know. Juice Radio Show, making some moves in the hood. Yeah. So, well, let me see. Before I get to our main topic right quick, uh, what's free? That's uh, Rick Ross and Jay-Z now, right? And that's what's going on. We're going to play that right quick because we need to know what's free, you know. So, let's, 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 uh, Get into that soon as uh, it gets queued up right here. So stick around. That's what we want to do. You know what free is, nigga? What's free? What's free is when nobody else can tell us what to be. Free is when the TV ain't controlling what we see. So my niggas, I need you. Through all the fame, you know I stay true. Pray my niggas stay free. Made a few mistakes, but this ain't where I want to be. Before I'm judged by 12, put a 12 on my feet. So my niggas, I need you. Stay up, I know these times ain't true. Real life, but Just free. a I was gunning, just got a pad out in London. I keep stacking my money, I need a ladder by summer. 8K shots, niggas ducking straight shots. Been a top dog, that's before the K dots. Cracking in 06, immaculate, show me ships. Talking like you mentioned, disastrous on the strips. Holding on your bitch could have never sold you a brick. With them people, you never been on the list. Mona Lisa to me ain't nothing but a bitch. Hanging pictures like niggas swinging from his dick. We so different, you thought these didn't exist. The Megalodon never seen on his wrist. I'm from the South where they never make it this rich. God is the greatest, but Satan been on his shit. Walking the pavement, I pray I'm illuminated. Over a decade and never nobody's favorite. Part and kilo go hand in hand like we gambling, huh? My amigo a million grams when we count them enough. 
You was dead broke, I let you hold it back. You paid for it, but I fuck around and stole the track. Screaming gang, gang, now you want to rap. Record you in charge, just caught him on the deck. Looking for a bond, lawyers want to jack. Purple hair, got them faggots on your back. We're free. Free is what nobody else can tell us what to be. Free is when the TV ain't controlling what we see. So my niggas, I need you. Through all the fame, you know I stay true. Pray my niggas stay free. Made a few mistakes, but this ain't where I want to be. Before I'm judged by 12, put a 12 on my feet. So my niggas, I need you. Stay up, I know these times ain't true. Real life, we yeah. free. Fed investigations, heard they plying like I trapped. 20 million cash, they know I got that up for rest. Maybe it's the Michael Rubens or the Robert Kraft. Or the billionaire from Marcy in the way they got my back. Uh, see how I prevail and now they try to knock me back. Uh, block me in the cell for all them nights and I won't snap. Uh, 250 is showing, they still think I'm selling crack. Uh, when you bring my name up to the judge, you tell them back. Tell them how we funding all these kids to go to college. Tell them how we teaching all these boys stopping violence. Trying to fix the system in the way that they designed it. I think they want me silent. Oh, say you can see. I don't feel like I'm free. Locked down in my cell, shackled from ankle to feet. Judge banging that gab will turn me to slave from a king. Another day in the bank. I gotta hang from a string. Just for popping a willy, my people went to the city from a south. Oh, yeah, you're on the Bobby Eaton show where we tell our stories our, our way. So, what's free? And uh, we've got a great show going on today. So, those of you who are tuned in, you can dial, well, tell somebody, 646-716-5525. And we're talking about the system of incarcerated people in prison with Richard Baxter, Demaria Mundy, and Alex Obanze, you know, in the house. So I hope I got all the names right, you know what I mean? Hey, you guys, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing fine. Doing, Doing fine. You great? I'm good. I'm good. Good, good, good. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Great. Well, we're talking about the prison system, you know, and uh, as some of you know, Oklahoma is rated the highest uh, prison incarceration in the world. Yes. That's what I just found out. I, I didn't know it was, I thought it was just women, but it's men too. Yeah, it just recently surpassed, we just recently surpassed Louisiana. Because we've led the nation with women incarceration for over 20 years. But here recently, then we, we surpassed Louisiana. So now it's men and women are the most incarcerated. Wow, that's interesting right there. Give Oklahoma a hand. Give, give <laughs> Oklahoma a hand, huh? That's what you say, that's what you say, uh, Baxter. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, you know, we are in one of the most, I feel, one of the most racist states, you know, in the yeah. United States, you know, and so it's it's really not a big surprise that we have incarcerated people. And they say, now, what are the statistics when it comes to African-American incarceration? You guys know? Got anything with that? Somebody told me it was 68%. Uh, I w- I, no, I don't know the numbers right directly off hand. Okay. The exact numbers off either. I, um... When you walk in a jailhouse, though, you, you can see. Because you, uh, Baxter, now you used to go down to the jailhouse all the time on the regular, right? Mm-hmm. And you were in there. Um, uh, tell us what you were doing when you were going in there. Well, I've been going um, to the jailhouse, um, not in handcuffs for a while. Mm-hmm. Since, uh, 2015. <laughs> uh-huh. I've been, uh, I was an intern for the public defender's office, and I would go down there and interview clients, and I would do the same when I was working at Tate Law Firm and uh, Arbitral Law. And, 
And then so I um and also the bail project. So uh for all the organizations dealing with law that I was involved with, mm-hmm. I've been now going to the, the jail and interviewing clients. I will go into the attorney's room and it's kind of like a pre-interview mm-hmm. with the attorney, just gather as much information that I can about the case, about what was going on and, you know, try to help the person who's in jail as much as possible. Yeah. Now tell us, cause we're going to go around in the room right here. We're going to get, everybody's going to get a chance. You were once incarcerated, right? No, I've never been in jail before. Now, come on, man. Get out of here. He gonna get on the show and say, no, I never did. It wasn't me. Yeah, it wasn't me. It was somebody else. But, man, on, on the real side, go ahead. You know, yeah, they, they found a backpack full of drugs. It wasn't me. They found a
they yeah. convicted you, huh? Uh-huh. And February nineteenth, so, two thousand nine. Uh-huh. What was what did you feel like, man? You know, so you going off, you locked down, and you you're in the system now, mm-hmm. and your first day of prison. Well, I before my first day of prison, because you have to in what we call pull chains here. I was in jail for like maybe a month and a half before they came and got me. before they have actually got they you right me on the green lizard and take me down to the prison, and so I um. I got sentenced and they put you in a butt naked room once you get sentenced to a life sentence to make sure you don't commit suicide. Because that's what that was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a life, life sentence. sentence. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. they put you in a butt naked room. You're supposed to be there 72 hours. They don't let you have a Bible. You don't have a pencil, paper, nothing to stab yourself in the neck or eye or you don't get any anything. You, you don't get a blanket or anything. You just get butt naked. You go in this room and they have a little... Um, like a little cot is made of this hard plastic thing shaped like a little U where you're supposed to curl up in there and they gave you this long napkin that you wear as your blanket. So you was butt naked for three days? Uh, I got out a little earlier because a lot of the staff knew me. I've been in David L. Moss for two years. So but that's normal procedure, mm-hmm. though. Yeah. So that I got out a little bit earlier than the three days because I wasn't, like, yelling and banging my head on the walls and stuff like that. But they didn't realize how dehumanizing that was, and they were yeah. starting to break you down to repair you. Yeah. For, to be broke down mentally. By the time so you that's what there. that was. They were breaking you. Like she said, they were breaking you down mm-hmm. and trying to get you to see what you could take, I guess, huh? I don't, they said, it, they said I asked them if I, because I had a little pocket Bible, and like, I said, can I have, no, you can't read that, you can't have that, because you might pull out all the pages and try to stuff it down your windpipe to cut your hair off and die, so they said it's all for safety procedures, what they told me, you mm-hmm. know, so. So you're, you're 19, 18, No, 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 at this point, I was what you're 25. You're 25 at this point? Yeah. Going for that 121 years? Yeah, uh, it was my second time yeah. going to prison, yeah. And so when you were in there and uh, you were in there, you did some work while you were in there, right? Legal work. Yeah. Some legal work. I had to work on my case. I was working on it. And I had um, a public defender and a paid attorney. I had two different cases going at the same time. And that's why I was in David Elmo's two years. And, you know, one was a drug deal gone bad. And another one was me getting caught with the, all the drugs mm-hmm. at a later date. And so, um, but what I learned was I had to energize both of those individuals, the paid attorney and the public defender, to work for me. They both told me to sign for time, and I was did not want to sign for any time, especially on the uh, the, uh, um, the the drug deal gone bad was a robbery case. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't rob the person, so I didn't want to sign for any time for that. And so I went to court and I fought for that. And you'll be hearing from Alex about his story, which recently he was, you know offered to sign for something as well. And mm-hmm. I, I, when I went for the drugs, if they would have offered me something that I could live with, I said, mm-hmm. okay, I know I did this. You know what I mean? I know I had this backpack full of drugs. I know I did this, but they tried to offer me 20 years. I thought it was unreasonable. And so I, I wanted to continue to fight. And I'd already went to my preliminary hearing and my case had been dismissed at preliminary. And then the judge or uh, the DA filed an appeal immediately after the judge said it was dismissed. And I went back to court six weeks in a row and went to three different judges and the police changed the story six times of why they conducted the search. And then they finally put the case back on me and uh, resided in J3VV uh, 300 North Denver 
David L. Moss Criminal Justice Center for an additional year. So that's made it two years. Two years, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 121 years you were faced with. Yeah, Jerry gave me that. I did all together total five years, three months, you know, on that time. And um, I worked at Appeal, and I worked with my attorney, and I sent him letters upon letters. I was banging on the case manager door. Hey, I need to call my attorney. I need to call my attorney, making phone calls. I uh, had my, my pops go up there to the public defense office and go visit with the man because I was like, I need to fire this person off of my my case. I don't like, he's not communicating with me. My dad spoke with him. He had the face-to-face interaction, right? And so mm-hmm. when he said that, uh, he said, I like him. Like, what do you like about Dude, he ain't talking to me. I'm writing him letters. He ain't writing me back. He said, I like him. I talked to him. And he's a good man. He's going to do this and that. I said, man. So I prayed and I said, okay, God, well, let me, I'm going off my, my father's um, personal experience with this person. Cause I didn't have a personal, I was all the way in Lawton correctional facility and he was in Tulsa working mm-hmm. on my case. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I'm writing him case laws, Kelly versus state and, New York versus Belton and all these um, search and seizure cases that dealt with uh, the facts. You fighting for your life, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then you were able to find a loophole, huh? Yeah. And that's what helped you, huh? It was illegal search and seizure. You know, I, I continued that fight because I was energized because it had been dismissed in preliminary hearing. And I knew there. Mm-hmm. Their search was illegal. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I need to continue and press on, even though the judge right now is mm-hmm. doing illegal stuff by putting the case back on me after it's already been proven an illegal search. Just got to keep fighting. Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, there's, there are ways out, mm-hmm. you know, if you keep fighting. All right. Well, man, that's your story right there. Alex, yes, how you doing, man? You know, you, uh, what happened to you? Um, Basically, it's a long, very long story, but I'll just call it shut. Uh, I spent 19 months in Osage County. 19 months? Yes, sir. Fighting a charge from 2006. Um, What kind of charge was it? It was a rape charge. A rape charge? From 2006. And um, I was accused of raping some lady. And I'm not going to. Mention, you got to mention no names yeah, or anything like that. Up a name but you were accused of rape yes, and raping someone, huh? Yes, and uh, how much time did they give you for that? Um, they, they actually never came at me with a deal initially. They never came with a deal. They came with several deals, but it was not like a. They never did say like. They didn't hey, say a number. They they know. alluded to they would offer him deals, but never you know because. I've since my experience from what everything I just told you and working on the law, that's when I started the legal life coaching business. Right. And mm-hmm. so um, Alex was one of my very first clients. Okay. And his mom, his mom reached out to me and we re- went over his case and then we went and visited with him. And so, you know, I've been there with him through this thing almost from, I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't there the whole 19 months, but yeah. it's been a long time. Yeah, okay. He showed up at the right time though. Right time? Yeah, when I needed him the most. Mm-hmm. I needed yeah. somebody to like, so, yeah. challenge me. So, so Baxter, tell everybody how to get in touch with you. You know, we got a lot of listeners listening today. How can they get in touch with you for, you know, counseling and stuff like that, man? You know, yeah. 
They call me 918-946-3884. I'm on Instagram. It's Negro Spiritual 121 for that 121 years. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm on uh, uh, Facebook, Richard Zabon, Z-O-B-O-N, Richard Zabon. Zabon Baxter, right? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, like um, like Alex was saying, uh, mm-hmm. it was right. He said, came over there right at the at the right time yeah yeah it, it just it just happened that um i'll let him go ahead and finish about that part of the story okay yeah, yeah. go ahead alex you yeah. finish up there um basically the justice system man i don't i don't believe it's something called justice in this country i just feel like um like one of the inmates told me he told me it's a negotiating business it's a negotiating system whereby you negotiate with the system yes. Shit, huh? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what he told me. He actually came at me and told uh-huh. me, man, you're never going to win. You're going against the state. It's what he told me. He said, you're going against you versus the state. They would do everything to milk you, to milk you from from every resources that you have. Yeah. Your energy, they would seclude you in a room. They would take your mail from you. They would do whatever in their power to make you feel like you are alone. And that was how I felt. I felt like I was alone. When he showed up, actually, I was up front in uh, um, segregation segregation room. By oh, where are you? Yeah. They segregated you, huh? Six months. I spent six months in that one room. Never left, never came out, never went to shower, never did none of that. I just got my food, eat, and then lay back down. And read. That was it, huh? And that was it for six whole months. And there's studies about being in segregation, I think, for how? how it shows how solitary confinement, it can actually, is, is debilitating to the mind. Exactly. You mm-hmm. know, it starts playing, your mind starts playing tricks on you. Mm-hmm. And, but it just, you know, it's, it's not good for humans, for humans at all mm-hmm. to be alone. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. But God came to my rescue, though. That's the whole beauty to everything mm-hmm. that happened was um, I had nobody, so I turned to God. The only person that always like showed up for me. I turned to God and um, I started praying. I prayed in that room and I, I just, you know, did you exercise or do anything like that? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. I exercise, yeah, but not all the time. I just committed my ways, my life, everything, the whole case. I committed it to God. I told God to take control, and it had. I mean. The charge being dismissed is all God because the DA, Osage County, they mm-hmm. really, they really, 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 really wanted mm-hmm. me to go to prison. They really mm-hmm. were after me, and mm-hmm. I never committed a crime. I mean, they, they dropped the charge from a rape to a possession mm-hmm. of stolen vehicle. Mm-hmm. When I went over there, I, I told them um, due process. I uh-huh. told them through due process. Let's go. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go to trial right now. I mean, it's been. Mm-hmm. 2006. Yeah. yeah, he he fought. Let me let me interject a little bit right here. He me we fought like how I was fighting my you know my attorneys and telling them like hey this is what you need to do this right. is what I need done in my case. Right. He was doing the exact same thing I was doing in my case. And so what we didn't know being the incarcerated people is that the, how much of a workload those attorneys have and they don't have that specific individualistic time to give to each one of us. And so because our life is on the line. We don't really think about all of that because we're concerned about our life and our freedom. Yeah. And so 
when I when I am able to, you know, take some of the pressure off the the attorney by not just bringing them questions, but bringing them solutions, looking up case law, bringing up different information to them, mm-hmm. that that energizes them and helps them to better work on that individual's case. And that's mm-hmm. why I realized when I did it for myself first. And in his particular case, what what he left out was about the um. So the situation was, it was, it's not like this person just blindly accused him of rape out of nowhere. It was a one night stand. He met this woman at the bar. She took him to his house, to her house, excuse me. To her house, right? Yeah, okay. She took him to her house. It's all on, on the, um, the news clip I'm sending you to. She took him to her house and they did what grownups do. Chubs, cover your ears. They did, they did what grownups do. Mm-hmm. And being a young guy, did something stupid. When I was young, I, t- I told you I stole that gun from a security guard. He stole her car. He stole her car the next morning. Okay. Oh. Went off somewhere, stole stole the PlayStation and the car and left. You know, it was her son's PlayStation or whatever. Stole that and left. And so she was angered because she got violated with her stuff getting stolen. And so then she turned around and said, well, how am I going to attack this person? And so I'm stressing a lot to men about doing things like that, taking somebody's stuff. Take like I have another case that I'm working on where a guy, he went to go retrieve his TV from his ex-girlfriend's house. He went in the house. His name isn't on the lease. You can't just go up in there. Uh, He went up in the house. She wasn't there? She was there. And he went and grabbed the TV. He's taking the TV, he's leaving, and then she he get he gets attacked from behind. But he's the one who gets arrested and gets charged with uh assault and battery. Why? Because he didn't call the police. She called the police first. Hmm. And so different issues like that is like stay away. Stay away. Don't what they always say, a woman scorned. Yeah. yeah. I'm so, scared. So, so, <laughs> So should you let <laughs> certain situations should you let the police handle it? Because so that, when, that, when you say certain, that, when you say certain situations, explain that to me. Well, I mean, you know, like you're in a certain situation where you know you got some stuff in the house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Should you call the police and say, "Hey, man, I got some stuff in that house and I want to get it"? Definitely. You know? If you have something that's in somebody else's house, your name is not on that lease. Y'all broke up. Y'all not friends no more. Whatever. And you need to go get the police because if you go over there, oh, Billy Badass, I'm I'm about to go. I'm getting my stuff. I'm getting my stuff. You're going to be getting a charge. <laughs> they call the police. Yeah. On you. Well, won't that sometime uh, they look at it maybe as a civil case? You No, you the know? police are here to serve. So in other words, and serve, and they just, need to do that. So in other words, I can just, hey, man, I got my, that's my TV in there. That's my clothes in well, there, and that's my a lot of stuff. Yeah. And so the police say, "Okay, let's go in here and get it." If you have, if it's with you and a woman, yeah. you know, a lot of times yeah. they'll understand that. But if it's like something where it's a dispute, and then you're gonna have to prove, what kind of, you know, if it start getting too too messy. But as long as she, you know, I mean, when she's standing there and she's like, "He can get his stuff, he can get his clothes, but he can't take my t- take that TV." Now he's about to get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that those kind of things happen. And Alex, you you spent your time up in there, right? Yes, sir. And uh, how did it feel, man, on your first day of release? Oh, it was joyful. Also happy. 
And it felt like justice was actually served because the whole time I kept saying, the only crime I committed that night was taking her car. I knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. I left the car in Collinsville. I drove the car all the way to Collinsville. And, and so, you dropped it off there. Too much information. information. Don't talk about okay. you left the car. And <laughs> okay. And I left the car over there. And I knew it was wrong. I mean, years later, it, it was on my heart. You understand? I kept rem remembering mm -hmm. the things that I've done. And I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. The very first time this case came up, I talked about it. I was like, the only thing I did was steal her car. So if she's coming after me because of the car, I can pay back the car. You understand? I can pay back tenfold, like the Bible mm -hmm. says. I can pay back over and over and did over. Did the car get in cost? Did they, uh, the car was, was impounded. impounded? Yes. Yeah. The car was impounded. She got her car back and everything. She never got the keyboard back. It was a keyboard and a PlayStation mm -hmm. that I took from her house. She mm -hmm. never got that back. You should not you understand? You should not just falsely accuse somebody over possessions. You understand? She said you raped her, huh? She said I raped her. She said, actually, she tried to allude to uh, Bill Cosby. She said that she got dizzy. She don't remember. So they were at the bar, the Rose Room. Yeah. They're at the bar. And this is all for her testimony um, on the witness stand. They're at the bar. So she, not they, her and her friend, mm -hmm. when they're a female friend, they go to the bar together. She orders a Long Island iced tea. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She orders a Long Island iced tea. Uh -huh. she, she gets her drink. Her and her female friend go sit at a table. Then she drinks half of her drink. She drinks 50% of her drink, goes to the restroom. When she comes out of the restroom, that's when she initially lay eyes on Alex here. Oh, okay. She sees him. Yeah, I've seen that had that happen before. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. So then she never finishes her drink. Okay. Did you see what did you was Mr. Alex anywhere around you, the bar when you got your drink? No, he was not. Was Mr. Alex anywhere around the table with you and your friend when you sat down with your, your drink? No, he was not. Was he anywhere around you at any time with you and your drink? No, he was not. She said that she got dizzy after uh, she went met him on the dance floor. She she it blacks out and starts getting faded and hazy. She ends. She remembers again. Blacks out. She's uh, in her passenger seat of her own car. Mm -hmm. This is a one night stand. You meeting a stranger. He's never been to her house before. She said that on the stand and in her several news interviews. So he, how would he know where she's living? Wow. Then the next morning, um, she wakes up and she doesn't know what happened. Mm hmm. All right. Well, look, we're going to, um, before we go to uh, the phone lines, introduce yourself to everybody in the house. Hello, I'm Keisha Matoya. Uh, what happened? I don't know. I lost you. Hey, uh, go ahead. Can you hear me now? Go ahead, Keisha. I'm Keisha Matoya. Uh, I was formerly incarcerated. I was incarcerated twice. Uh, for drugs, both times. Mm hmm And, uh... Well, you, you were incarcerated, right? Yes. For drugs. You know, everybody, mainly for drugs, you know, something like that. I, I, I was in a little halfway house for some drugs, you know, at one time, but, uh... <laughs> You know, and, and what happened? 
with your case? Well, the first time I was incarcerated for drugs, I feel like, well, it was my first offense. And on my first offense, I got 10 years for trafficking. For trafficking? Yeah. Kind of like Baxter, huh? Trafficking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I didn't, I only had to do two and a half years. Two and a half years? Yeah. It was for the 85% loss kicked in. Mm-hmm. Was that here in Oklahoma? Oh, uh, yes. It was here in Oklahoma. Was it Mabel Bassett or something like that? And I was an Eddie Warrior. Eddie Warrior. Okay. 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 Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you were able to overcome that. And how long ago has it been? I went in 92. In 92? Okay. 92, 90. That's a long time ago. That's about 20, some, 20 years ago, huh? And the second time I went in 2004. 2004. Yeah. Yes. Well, we're going to keep you out of there. Okay. That's what we want to do. Well, look here. We're going to go to the phone lines right quick. I'm kind of curious. to. Uh-oh, he, he clicked off. So one of them clicked off. But, hey, moving on along, Demaria Monday. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, 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 hey. Tell us a little bit about your story and what you're involved in and what's going on. Okay. So I am formerly incarcerated. And with me, I was a first-time first time nonviolent drug offender. Mm-hmm. And I received a federal indictment. So meaning that um, the feds, they, I was convicted of a conspiracy to distribute 50 grams or more of crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. And that carries a mandatory minimum of 10 years. So a mandatory minimum says that regardless of anything else, that if I'm pregnant or, you know, no matter what, no matter what I get caught with, that I'm responsible for everybody else's. And I still have to go, go do 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I was in Texas when I first got, when I first received my sentence. I, received, I had 10 years. And they sent me all the way from Texas to Florida. And at that time, my baby was only, I was pregnant with my first child and I got indicted. And so my baby was only six months old when I went to Florida. Mm-hmm. And I saw him once when he was nine, nine months old. And I didn't see him again until I came back home to Texas. And he was two years old already. Mm. So I had missed out on all of those, you know, the first steps, the first words, the first teeth. And a lot of times people say, well, at least you know that you can go and while he's young and it's not going to be as much of an impact. And I still beg to differ because any point in time a mother is separated from their child, that attachment and there's still trauma this face. So I went to, I was in Tallahassee, Florida, and I was over there for a couple of years and I came back to, to Texas. And when I came to Texas, I was in a medical facility. And in that medical facility, I saw all types of sickness and, and, and death. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't think that some somebody that was sentenced to, you know, just some years in prison would be also sentenced to a death sentence. You know, I, saw, I went in with people that didn't make it out. And so um, when I went to prison, I made it up in my mind, though, that I was like, you know, I'm going to be a better person when I come out than the person I was going in. Because when I was on the outside, I didn't realize just how much I was part of the problem. And I said, like, you know, when I go home, I'm not going to be part of the problem anymore. I'm going to be part of the solution. So I started, you know, serving, I started serving others. You know, I was a hospice volunteer and I did all the programs that I could to just better myself because my whole goal was that you can imprison my body, but you cannot imprison my mind. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. my goal was to allow my, my mind to transcend the prison walls and learn as, as much knowledge about my history and, and also who I was. Because a lot of times our history is hidden from us. And so we don't realize the greatness that they've come just from our ancestors. 
And so when I started reading more, you know, about how in all these movements, they learned, you know, the, the, the power of the number. Because being born in 1980 during the crack ep- epidemic, it was already predetermined that we're going to be one of two numbers. Either you're going to be a number in somebody's prison or you're going to be a number on somebody's voting ballot. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I no longer want to be that number in, no, in somebody's prison. Don't invest in me like I'm some type of capital because mm-hmm. that's what they're banking on. So I started, I did college, some college classes and I got my, my um, a certificate in management because they didn't offer degrees. And I end up, I, I knew I didn't want to go back to the same place where I was from. And so I end up being led to Tulsa, but this is actually where I was born at. My family's on Mondays. I have a, there's a large, you know, family. Yeah, I know here. some of your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but with that, I, I came home and, and I started, you know, working and going to school. And I really didn't share my story about being formerly incarcerated. You know, I came here to start over. So it's like, that's something I don't have to tell. If mm-hmm. I don't want to tell it. Then I don't have to. You mean here and yeah, coming yeah, yeah huh? coming to Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Nobody would never know. Huh? No, they wouldn't know unless I told them so. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to TCC, and it was my last year, and I I um, joined the African American Student Association. And when I joined that, I met Baxter. Baxter was the vice president. Uh oh. Before me. Mm-hmm. And so then I was elected to be the vice president. But um, we went through that semester not knowing not knowing anything about the other one's story. So when it was time for us to graduate, Ambassador shared his story. I was like, wow, that's similar to my story. You know, like, here he is. I've been holding this in, and you got the same story as me. Mm-hmm. And and from there, you know, we, we connected, and, you know, we still, we both had that, that desire to fight for freedom. And so, you know, we stayed connected, and, you know, years later, um, I had a friend that when I had 10 years, he, I was sentenced to 10 years, he was sentenced to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And he was waiting on his clemency from President Obama. And it was like on the last day before Obama was about to was about to to um be out of office. And I was like, I gotta do all that I can to say that I've raised my voice for freedom for my friend. Because this is my friend, like, you know, my homie, that's my ride or die. Like we go back like four flats in a Cadillac. But, um, you know, so we were doing social media and then there was, you know, we were also writing letters and calling. But Baxter had the privilege of being able to fly for free. His sister had gifted him that for his graduation. Mm. So Baxter had the ability to be able to say, okay, I'm going to fly to Chicago to go get my ticket. And then I'm flying back to Tulsa and I'll fly back when it's time for the for the farewell speech. I didn't have that luxury. (laughs) You didn't have that luxury? No, I was broke. You know, full time student taking care of taking care of two kids. It you know, but I still wasn't giving up on hope. And I said, you know, I started telling the community and the church and just telling everybody of my, you know, my quest for freedom. Of what I want, you know, I want to go to Chicago to raise my voice for freedom. And the community came together and supported me and also my family. And with that, I was blessed with enough money to be able to go to Chicago. And so on the way to Chicago, I said, you know, um, I called somebody else. That was, and I said, do you know anybody in Chicago that can come stand with me in solidarity? And um, and she said, I'm from Chicago. But let me call somebody else, too. So she called a few more sisters. And she said, let me tell y'all about this sister that is driving 10 hours mm-hmm. down the ride for the call all the way to Chicago, Illinois. Wow. Mm-hmm. So then I had three women that came and met with me. And they were part of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. Mm-hmm. And I met these women, 
And these are some dynamic sisters that are, you know, they are former attorneys or, you know, have their own nonprofit. And, they, you know, they're just fighting. They're fighting for freedom. So we went to the McCormick where Obama was speaking at. So we in there with our signs, you know, our, our freedom signs, like free, you know, free, free Crystal Munoz, free mm-hmm. Patricia Jones, right. Patricia Clark. Mm-hmm. And we got put out the McCormick. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we got put right out. But we were still on the corner and with our signs up, Afro blowing, trying to get some media attention. And of course, that night, we didn't get any media attention. But the next day, Somebody asked me, they said, well, where are you, what are you, where are y'all going to eat tomorrow? I said, well, I don't know. They said, well, you should go to Obama's favorite restaurant. Uh-huh. And so when I did that, then I met with Fox 32 News. They said, why are you here all the way from Tulsa, Oklahoma? Then I told them about my, my quest for freedom. Mm-hmm. Both that into the atmosphere. And so um, a few days later, I found out that my friend had got his clemency. So where he would have been out in 2020 something, he is now home being a successful, productive member of society. Mm-hmm. And that started my connection with, you know, with being able to work on a national level, um, with connecting with women who were doing legislation and who were, um, you know, leading campaigns and who were at the White House and just, you know, just connecting with, with a, a national movement. Mm-hmm. And that led me to, to doing more work and, and to being able to, um, they said, Demaria, what is something that Oklahoma doesn't have that you want to take back to Oklahoma? I said, I want to take back anti-shackling legislation in Oklahoma. And it was like anti-shackling, you know, a lot of people, when you say anti-shackling legislation, they don't know what that means. Yeah, right. Explain it to our audience. So what that means is that when a woman is incarcerated, that her hand, her wrist is often handcuffed to the bed. That Well, a pregnant woman, when she's incarcerated and um, she's in labor, she's often, you know, her she often has chains around her, her wrist in her belly and also her feet. And also when she goes to deliver her baby, she's handcuffed to the bed, either her wrist or her ankle, if not both. And then even as a woman in postpartum, they still have you handcuffed in, in chains. And so anti-shackling legislation prohibits that. And, you know, um, it's often denied that that happens because, you know, when you're in prison, you don't have anybody to, to advocate and say like, hey, this is what's going on. And so now that, you know, I've survived the other side, I can come back and say mm-hmm. that we need to shine a light upon this darkness. Right. And then we got to restore dignity to incarcerated women. Mm-hmm. So that's one part of the bill, but there's two parts of the bill. The second part allows a woman that, that is, um, in, that she's pregnant, incarcerated woman that's pregnant to have access to a doula, to a loved one, or, or also a, a clergy, just so she won't be alone during childbirth. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in prison, women are often, they have the guard in the room with them. Right. And um, some, and a lot of times... That Is it a be, male guard or female guard? It can be a, fem- a female, but a lot of times it's a man guard. So that's something else that the bill asks, it, it calls for. It's for the male to be outside the, the room. If mm-hmm. it has to be a, a male officer, then he needs to be outside the room. Mm-hmm. You know, give that woman her dignity it, to be able to bring Experience life, life. Yes, yeah. bring life into the world without being tra- traumatized even more. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's, that's good. Well, look here, we're going to go to the phone lines. Uh, and see who's going to talk right here and say a couple of things. Area code 612-545. You're on the Bobby Eaton Show. Yes, sir. Thanks for taking my call. My name is David. Hello? You're on the Bobby Eaton Show. Area code 612-545. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. Can you come up a little bit? 
Yeah, is it better now? Go ahead. All right. I just want to say thanks for checking my call. Um, the question I, I wanted to ask was, I noticed that when a lot of people mention nonviolent drug offender, oftentimes people hear people frame that to make it sound like we're talking about people who go to prison for having, let's say, a dime bag of marijuana. But what that really is talking about is talking about drug dealing, right? Because no one does time for minor possession with intent to use. We're talking about possession with intent to distribute, right? Well, I mean, I'm going to let some of the more the people who know about it answer that question for you. Anybody want to answer that question? Yeah. Um, what's your name, sir? My name's David. David, what state are you in? Minnesota. You're in Minnesota? Okay, well, um, we're here in Oklahoma, the largest incarcerated state in the nation. People who use drugs go to prison, not rehab here. It doesn't matter what amount it is. It doesn't matter what. We just now, uh, yeah, my brother got two years in prison for a joint. So I'll just tell you that. For a joint of weed that was in his ashtray that he had already smoked half of the joint. He got two years in prison. That's a fact. Was that a probation violation? He was on probation. He got two years in prison for possession of marijuana. Yeah, I got to look into that. I find that really hard to believe. You're telling me that in the state of Oklahoma, I joined a marijuana you, was a two-year prison sentence? I'm telling you that in the state of Oklahoma, my brother got sentenced to two years for a joint of weed. Half right, of a but joint. That's, not, that's not the majority of the, of the prison population, right? The majority of people who are under the classification of nonviolent drug offender, we're pretty much talking about drug dealers. No, well, most people who are you, you're talking about Oklahoma. Oklahoma is different. I'm yeah. talking about nationally. I'm talking about the whole country. Because well, most states, they don't, they don't do serious prison time for minor drug possession. Isn't it from state to state? When the war on drugs really ramped up, that's mm-hmm. what that's what made it so that it didn't matter if you were using or not using. It's only now starting to change when the demographic of people who are being caught with using pills, using methamphetamine. And their, marijuana? Yeah, their hue is a little bit different than the people here in this room. And so that now they're trying to send them to treatment facilities instead of prison because prisons are overcrowded for nonviolent drug offenders. So if you're using, a, let's say you smoke weed, you bought yourself, uh, or let's just say you, you smoke meth. You smoke meth, you bought enough meth for you to smoke for two nights and you decided that, Hey, you wanted to sell some to me because I'm your friend and I smoke meth. Now you are a drug dealer. That doesn't mean you're a big time drug dealer, but you have enough and you didn't want to sell it to me or share it with me. You wanted to sell it to me. And it's only enough for one person to smoke for two days. Is that somebody who is a big time drug dealer? No, they're not, but they will. Both people will go to prison for possession of methamphetamine. Well, is it, isn't what they, isn't that action which you just described wrong and illegal? Isn't what illegal? What you just described. You talked. You gave an example of someone having enough meth or meth for two nights. They were going to use it, and they also plan to sell some of it. Aren't both those actions illegal and wrong? It's illegal to have it. It's illegal to use it. But people do it Period. who are who are addicted, and they do that regardless whether it's legal or not illegal. Alcohol was illegal at one point and people, you know, used it and sold it and, and made 
wealth. Um, right. So did, did you have to use any of that? Did you have to use drugs or sell drugs? Did who have to use the drugs? The, the user? Anybody. Did anyone ever have to use drugs? Were you, were you well, telling people, me that people are being forced to use drugs? Well, what, what, we're, what we're saying is that the incarcerated population, so I can speak I can speak for, for women and male. A lot of people that are incarcerated have substance abuse issues because they've endured trauma. And a lot of times it's been generations upon generations of trauma. And so uh, because that mental, the, the mental illness and the trauma is not addressed in our communities, people turn to substance abuse. So then when you use drugs, no, you don't have to use it, but that's, the, that's your survival and your coping skill to be able to survive all the trauma that you endure. So when you choose that way, then that's often criminalized. And when it's, you know, and it seems that some of the, the crimes and that the crime doesn't match, match the punishment. So when you look at the sentences of small, simple possession, then, you know, you can ask the question like, oh, well, shouldn't that be illegal? And some of the laws are changing in Oklahoma. And, and um, last year's legislative session, Bill HB 780 was passed. And what that does is it reclassifies simple drug possession to from it being a felony to a misdemeanor. So things are changing. But, you know, when you ask if people have to use drugs, then, you know, mm-hmm. that's people's mm-hmm. survival skills. Yeah. Well, that's uh, something a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people don't understand that uh, laws vary in different states. You know, in Oklahoma has we one of the harshest, yeah. the harsh, harshest civilized states. Mm-hmm. Right, one of the hardest. You know, so that's why we have an overflow of of incarcerated people. Think about it. You know, we got all these privately owned prisons. It's kind of like Baxter. If you had a prison and you owned a prison, and you know you got government money coming. I would want it packed you, so that I could you get, you get that money. X amount of dollars per exactly. person who's in there. Exactly. Keeping ninety five percent full for any kind of any kind of anything. crime. It don't matter what it is. So they're making money off yeah. people's backs in prison. Yeah, it could be just like fraud on writing checks or anything. Mm-hmm. I, I wish you know, David didn't get off the phone. Because well, he dropped off the phone right quick, and you know he, it happens. But, it does happen. Yeah. I just want. I mean, he seemed like a strong minded person, and I wanted to ask him. If he had ever smoked marijuana in his life. Okay, he's back again. Let's see. Let's go back. It looks like he's back. David, are you back? Yeah, sorry about that, my my signal dropped. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he's back. David. Yeah. Question for you. I say you seem like a strong minded person. I wanted to ask you, had you ever smoked marijuana in your life? Yes, I did. And you weren't forced to or were you forced? I don't know. I'm that's the were you forced to do do something? Okay, you chose to do so. So the question you asked, you already knew the answer to. You already know that people have the choices, and they make those choices to use or not use drugs. And you know the different reasonings behind why Demaria explained something that a coping mechanism for different traumas that people may experience in their life. People people self-medicate, whether you get prescription drugs over the counter and uh, and overuse those or abuse those because you're depressed or it makes you feel better or something like that. And so people, we have to look at look toward people as not drug addicts, but look to people as people. I sold drugs, and my brother he I forced his hand to teach me how to sell drugs after my my first time getting getting incarcerated. And that's the one thing he said to me. He said, always treat people like people. I heard a story of people who had 
you you can't just. Well, isn't, uh, isn't that a contradiction that you just said? No, let me let me explain to you. When I said always treat people like people, listen to the words that I'm saying. There's some when you yeah, when but you it's say coming from you, a drug dealer. That, that's exactly the that's that, a drug dealer could say. So when you call somebody, a, when you classify somebody, if you say coming from a drug dealer, what do you, you right. how do you classify this person that, because they sell drugs or because they have the drugs that somebody wants to have? You, a drug dealer in your mind, it sounds like you're trying to say that they're a predator. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, they are because they're willing to make a financial profit off of the destruction of someone else's life, and they know that's what it's doing. Well, a predator. I grew would up mean around a lot of drug dealers. They know full well. They have full knowledge of what the drugs are selling these people, especially if we're talking about crack and heroin. What that's doing to the people they're selling it to. But in their how, mind, how did you get? How did you get the, the dollar they smoke. get in their pocket? Then what happens to that person's life? How did you get the marijuana that you used, David? What do you mean? How did I get the marijuana? That's nothing new. We're talking about. Did a drug dealer sell it to you? Of course. Okay, so I want to I want to speak to that now though. Well, hold so on, time, talking... out, time, out, time. Out. Let's let's deal with this brother right here. First of all, he's trying to equate. <laughs> hold on, he's not he's trying to equate. No, no, hold on. I want to be clear. This guy trying to make a moral equivalency out of hold up. He's trying to make a moral equivalency out of a drug addict versus a drug dealer. In my opinion, they're two different things. A drug dealer is worse than a drug addict. Everybody knows that. And well, a drug dealer I... is not a victim. What goes on right now is people want to victimize criminal behavior and excuse it and make it seem like it's not that bad. Okay, my brother was a drug dealer. I know a lot of people that were in the drug dealing lifestyle. I know a lot of people that were drug addicts. I saw firsthand what crack and heroin did to a lot of people. And to sit here and you're going to tell me that your friend or brother, that your brother you said told you, as a drug dealer, he told you you need to treat people like they're human. That's the biggest contradiction I ever heard, because how can you be selling destruction to somebody, knowing what you're giving them is killing them, knowing what you're giving them is ruining their lives and the lives of their families, and then turn around and tell me he's treating them like they're human? So the people at the gas station who sell you cigarettes and sell you alcohol, please, please, everybody, calm down for a minute. Alcohol is a legal drug sold in every gas station. Yeah, but it's like this. The difference is, it's they say legal, and then they yeah. say illegal. So, for me, I used to do drugs. I used to smoke crack. Okay, mm-hmm. I smoked crack, and I smoked that by choice. That was a choice that I did, and I got it from people who sold dope and sold drugs. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that was by choice, yeah. not realizing that he was poisoning me. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize he was poisoning me because I was in a depressed state of mind mm-hmm. and I used it to just camouflage how I really was needing to feel. Yes. You know, and I was playing music. I didn't even care. Mm-hmm. I didn't care about anything. Just that pain. But the drug dealer was actually poisoning my body, my body. and those, and you, those, and you those blame around him. him. You so, blame the drug dealer no, for no, you no, smoking no, crap? No, 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 no. You just said that. I he poisoned said, you. Yeah, he poisoned he, me he because that. he, he Okay, he, he allowed you he to poison yourself. He, offered, he, 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 he didn't even offer it. You went to seek him out so you can poison yourself. Exactly. Take responsibility and, 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 for your own actions is and, what everybody has I, to do. But the thing about it is the responsibility of the drug dealer okay. 
is not to poison his people. So let that's, me let me speak not to poison his people. Let me speak from the perspective of a drug dealer. From from the drug dealer because yes. I tried that too. Okay, so I let me tried so, drugs so let me too. let me talk about it. Okay. Okay. So from a drug dealer's perspective. What? So when you you grow up and, and you being exposed, you know you being exposed to this lifestyle of this fast money and the shiny cars. And yes, you can see you can see people suffering all around you, but you become desensitized to it because that's the life that we've become accustomed to. Now, me, my my mother worked all the time and was a hard worker. But when she left me with my auntie, my aunt lived next door to a crack house. So mm-hmm. these same people, like my auntie didn't have cable. So I would go to church to, you know, be able to have something to do. So the same people that I was on a church bus with are the ones who came, who grew, who grew up to become the neighborhood drug dealers. That they have the big cars and the big rims. So I'm watching the videos and I'm buying into that. And I, you know, and I'm not realizing how I'm, I'm helping to destroy my community. You know, just as far as taking responsibility from a drug dealer's perspective, it's you know, yes, I, you know, it's, I had a slave mentality, but not only that, you know, it's an addiction, you know, just like there's an addiction to the drug, there's also addiction to money. Exactly. And, and what people don't realize is like, you know, it works hand in hand. So, you know, they, they coincide and we're not, you know, we're not looking, we've been programmed to not, build our communities to well, be a part well, of the problem. First of all, I think that uh, when it comes to drugs, I think that black people as a whole, we don't manufacture no drugs. No. We don't have no boats. We ain't got no planes. We ain't got nothing with stuff coming in. We got white people giving us these kilos and all and, this and stuff. And that was, that was and, the plan. And, 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 yeah, right. But yeah. do you have to sell it? Huh? Do you have to sell it, though? You know, we bought into it. That's, well, we bought it. That's the slave mentality of buying into you, the system. You don't have to sell it, but when you see fast money and the lure of it, and and that's well, when, when people what, that's when people fall victim to that trap. When you think when you want to play outside the box and think like, okay, well, you, I, this well, you just said it yourself. Way. You see what you did? You just said they fell victim to the trap instead of saying they chose to do it because they wanted the fast money. So what you're trying to no, do is you want to make it, you want to minimize the responsibility of people that you no, be I, I don't want to minimize the responsibility. You are, you are, you are, you are literally trying to defend them against the other brother on the line by trying to equate them like drug dealers to people who sell cigarettes and alcohol and try to make it out to be like this the same thing of selling crack and heroin. I mean, come on, man. Cigarettes kill how many people from cancer every day? Plus, oh, so you're telling smoke. me cigarettes are the same thing as crack, cocaine, and heroin? I know crackheads who've been smoking crack for thirty years. They're not. They don't have cancer. They're not dying. And they and they're still alive. And they yeah, so, so, so what you're saying is, you're saying so that that, that, that drug dealers they're, they're not they're not they're not doing something wrong. I'm not saying they're not doing something wrong. I'm saying that. Well, what's the what's the point so of you making saying, a statement? You, do you think that drug dealers it? are less than human beings? No, I think they're human beings that make bad choices that not only destroy their lives but they're destroying people around them. For their own selfish Let me That's say one thing. Let me say one thing about being. I never ever wanted to destroy anybody's life by selling drugs. Yeah, you did. I, I no. Listen yeah, to yeah, me. you did because if you if you listen to the statement, listen to you. I have to finish my statement. I have to finish my statement so can't. you can hear what I'm saying before you interject. I never wanted to destroy anybody's life by selling drugs. You hearing me? This is my thought. And I sat down 2006 before I started selling drugs. I sat down, thought about this. My First of all, my brother had been to jail over and over and over, prison twice. I never wanted to put my family through that. 
Yes. No, you're not. Well, well, what kind of drugs are you selling? And so, and so no, 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 no. I'm going to mute everything. Hold on. This is it. This is it. Okay, what this is, is it? it? Before I leave, this is it. The thing I said, I said to myself, I consciously thought, am I, this person is going to utilize drugs. And this is a real thought that I've talked to myself. This person is going to utilize these drugs anyway. They're going to mm-hmm. go and buy this from whoever I might have. What kind of drugs were you selling? That's my rationale, what I was thinking. But that's not a good rationale. I understand that, but what were you selling? That's what I was. Were you selling marijuana? Were you selling crack heroin? What were you selling? Oh, what were you selling? Everybody, please, hold on. This is the Bobby Eaton Show, okay? <laughs> hold on, please. Let's tone it down. What I'm trying to say, anytime that I tried selling drugs and I used drugs. I did them both. You know what I mean? When I was selling, then all of a sudden I tested my merchandise and I became, I started smoking. You know what I mean? I didn't realize when I gave that pregnant lady or that guy a piece of that rock, how much poison I was giving them every time I was doing it. You know what I mean? I didn't think about it. I, I didn't say, well, if I, they don't get it from me, they're going to get it from somebody else, so I'm going to go ahead and just get paid. You know, I didn't realize that it was like me with the skull bone, crossbone in my hand, giving this iodine to these people, you know, and I'm just steadily killing them, and I'm killing myself. You didn't realize you know, what you said. You know, so what, 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 I'm saying, what I'm saying, what I'm saying about that is subconsciously you don't think about stuff like that because if you oppressed and you're depressed and you see a way to come up, you know, to make yourself feel good by getting some material stuff, you know what I mean, or, or having a fat bank account, then that's what you end up doing. How because you argue with me and you on my side? Oh, no, no, the same no, no, thing. no, 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 no. I'm saying the same thing, <laughs> but at the same time, that is an illness and a sickness too. And and it's an illness that we've it's been told. It's an illness and a sickness. Because, we've been told that because if you, if you go deeper and you talk about the system, you know, say for instance, you have you have the media that influences our choices. So if you have you have these these videos that are that are glorifying. The, the fast money lifestyle mm-hmm. and the drugs and, and movies and, and the oh, movies and you know you oh, have okay. all of this so it's the media's fault now here it's, we go no it's not the media's fault but it is an influence it is a contributing factor because right. we you know we buy into it so not to say that you know this the media's responsibility but I'm saying that they do play a responsibility as far as the the influence so but right. I'm saying those same people that control the media are the same people that have stock in the private prison industry. So it's there. Oh. They get an incentive to, to so, push so that. Go ahead and say it. So what you're saying is, it's white people's fault. It's America's fault. It's media's well, yeah. fault. It's everybody's you know fault except the person who's doing the action, right? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I will say is, do, are you familiar with the um with the how how cocaine was was brought into our community <laughs> into crack? I'm are very you familiar, familiar with that. that? Okay, but so you you know just that because someone gives you drugs to bring it doesn't mean that you have to take the drugs. And sell it. It doesn't mean you have to pick up that gun, aim it at somebody, and shoot them. Are you telling me that you have to be a drug dealer and that you have to use guns and kill people? You sick selling it and you sick using it. We both we both depress. We I'm I'm saying to you is that people have a brain. Unless you're telling me that your brain is incapable of deciding between right and wrong, and you don't know how to you make decisions. If you're like if someone is mentally capable of thinking, then okay, what you're saying is valid. Because you could say that person doesn't know what they're doing, and so they could be influenced to do something wrong. I get it. But if you tell me a normal human being with a normal brain 
and the function and understanding of right and wrong, that person is now excused from the decisions they make because they're black yeah. or because of racism or because the FBI get so-called put drugs in their community. Are you yeah. kidding me? All right, okay, that, if that's the case, if that's the mentality that you're saying, then that's there's good. no hope for the black community. If that's, that's the way we're going to think going forward, it's game over for us. Because yeah. nothing will ever change. All right, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, yeah, right, right. We're going to move on right here, David, man. You know, we are, you, you got some strong points there. We got some strong points over here. So I want to thank you, man, for calling in and that viewpoint right there that you got. Thank okay. You. Thank you, David. I, I thank you as well. Thank you, man. Thank I like, you. I like to keep in contact with you so we can continue the conversation. If that's fine, David, is, he, is that okay, on? David? Absolutely. So any, any, any time. Okay, man. Appreciate it. Hey, man. Hey, David. Call in again, man. You know what I mean. Don't don't let this be your last time calling into the Bobby Eaton show, man. We appreciate you. Okay. All right. He hung up right there, and then got out of here. So that's it. Well, we've been talking about drugs and everything, incarceration, and the whole shebang. You know what I mean. And uh, it's uh, Baxter got Baxter got to leave right now. Him and him and Alex, but we're gonna continue. We're gonna continue on talking about. It. We're gonna take a little break, and uh, we're gonna come. We're gonna come right back. Okay, you're on the Bobby Eaton Show, where we tell our stories our way. <laughs> Bye. 
We clean up pretty well and get back to reality tomorrow. Okay, here, tell us a little bit about your program and what you got going on tomorrow. Okay, so I want to back back to to um, well, Block Builders. That's the name of my organization. It's the vision that I that I was given while I was in, incarcerated. Well, hold on, Demari. Here, let's go to the phone lines right quick. Let's see what we got right here. Okay, yes, three one four three eight one. You're on the Bobby Eaton show. How you doing, Mr. Eden? Pretty good. How you doing? Doing fine. You know, uh, I heard sounds... you talking about yeah. Pianchi. I heard you talking about drugs earlier. Yeah, we're talking now about you... drugs. Now, my, me, myself, and not just me, but others, and you have evidence of what where this went on in other countries. But I'm for street drugs to be legalized. Okay. Legalized so street drugs. That Amsterdam effect. Yeah, well, uh, Amsterdam, Angola. Yeah. You legalize street <clears throat> drugs, have dispensaries for the addict, because it's the addict that's using these drugs. They're sick, or mm-hmm. however you want to describe them, where they can go to the dispensary and get their fix. It would be safe, proper quantity. They could sit and be monitored. And they can get up and leave, or they can sign up for further treatment. Mm-hmm. So, Bobby, what kind of drugs are you? What kind of drugs are you talking about? Drugs. Are you talking about all street yeah, drugs? All, all cocaine, street drugs. heroin, all of them, right? Right. All street drugs. That's the center of the violence that you see on the streets, mm-hmm. having to do with sales and distribution. Kind of like people, uh, property and lives are being taken. Mm-hmm. Kind of like all of the here in Tulsa and Oklahoma, we got all of these dispensaries popping up. I mean, they're everywhere. Um, when I you mean for marijuana? For marijuana, which is a street drug, you know, but uh, it's um, and they're popping up everywhere. Yeah, but and you can see the premise of cocoa plants two dollars and twenty cents. Last time I heard in Peru a kilo. 
Mm-hmm. But the drug that's derived from that, selling on the streets in your big major cities, is selling for ninety thousand dollars a kilo. Well, just Ooh. within, just in that, there's room for taxation, and the taxes can be utilized for the treatment and other things. Mm-hmm. But no, the major thing, Bobby, is that these street crimes that you see, these shootings and everything else, where innocent people are getting caught up in this, I have yet to see anyone standing on the corners of opposite each other, shooting at each other over a bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> because they can go to the liquor store and get it. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I so see. I see. And so... Do you think it would be an increase of addiction with some of these well, harder Bobby, drugs like, like heroin and, and crack cocaine and meth, things like that? Well, I can't say whether it would be an increase in addiction, but I know that there would be a less likelihood of children walking on the streets. Going as far to as crime, right? Yeah, or people running into a Starbucks and shooting at somebody and shooting up everybody else. Mm-hmm. And the, the events that you had in Chicago were 62 people were shot over the weekend. Mm-hmm. St. Louis last month, 42. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they just had a shooting in Dayton, Ohio, too. So people are going crazy. Well, yeah, people have mental problems. That's a whole different. Well, I don't know if they have mental problems, but they do it for some reason. But mm-hmm. in Chicago, well, it's it's in Chicago, Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital had to close down the emergency room. Couldn't take anybody else. Now here's the thing: suppose somebody had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just want to put that out there. Crazy. Well, man, thank you for putting it out there. You know, you one of our favorites here at the Bobby Eaton Show, and uh, continue on, man, listening to us. Okay. Thank you very much, Bobby. All right, Pianchi. All right, here on the Bobby Eaton Show where we tell our stories our way. Demaria, you were saying. Was is, is me saying, like, I would read the newspaper for Tulsa, and I would see how Tulsa, the North, North Tulsa community was undeveloped. And so I made it part of my mission to come to North Tulsa to work on building North Tulsa or rebuilding it. And, and starting with rebuilding, it starts with the mindset of rebuilding the Black Wall Street mindset and just believing that we can. And so, you know, going back to, to 3393, that's our, our anti-shackling bill. You know, it started out with just a thought where I was having a conversation with Keisha next to me. Mm-hmm. And Keisha shared her story with me of how she was shackled during when she was in, in labor. Wow. And, and so with that, when I told Regina, Regina said, well, introduce Regina me to somebody. Goodwin. Yes, Regina, I represented Regina Goodwin. She said, introduce me to somebody who's been shackled during, while they were incarcerated. And they were in labor. And I, and Keisha's story is the, the very first story that I share with her. And so with that, you know, like, I'll let Keisha speak on, on how that felt, you know, like how, to me, I could say it was kind of surreal yeah, to Keisha. talk about it. Yeah. What, and then I see mean, it happen. What was that experience like for you? It wasn't a good experience. I mean, when you're pregnant with a child and giving birth, you want to be able to enjoy the moment. But me being shackled the whole time doing Pregnancy, were in labor, that wasn't a good experience for me. Even even on the way to the hospital, I had to be shackled. Was I'm having contractions? I was shackled, hands, feet around my waist, 
I had to walk to the hospital because we parked the long distance and then contractions, having contractions and walking. That wasn't a good feeling. And that's a health risk because, you know, what if, you know, in the event that she was to, to fall, if her hands are handcuffed in front of her, then she can't, she can't brace that fall. And, you know, and it also, you know, with being able, that can, that can also cut off her circulation, the lines, you know, this, that cuts the circulation, the blood to the baby. You know, there's all these other factors that go into place. Like, you know, what if, you know, um, what if the doctor needs to perform, you know, immediate, an immediate surgery, something that's for an emergency. And you've got to go through all the process of, of, of un- unlocking this, the chain. And so um, that right there, that, that, that jeopardizes the mother and the child's health. And even while I was in uh, in labor, and then after I had him, I mean, I didn't have no family members there. I didn't have no one to be able to come, you know, sit with me or be with me while I was in labor. So that was a really a, a, a scary experience because you're by yourself and with the officer that you do not know. In the room with you, huh? In, in the room with you. Just and the officer and the doctor? And the well, doctor. And the doctor. No one else. And a lot of times the doctor don't even know. And, and you're chained down, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you shackled. Well, let me ask you this. What's the purpose of being shackled? And and see, I think when... For they, a pregnant woman, what's that purpose? Yeah, it does. It's, it's barbaric when you think about it. Why? And, and, and so I think when those laws were written, they weren't written in regards to women in our specific issue. So that was the whole purpose of writing this and saying, like, this is gender specific, that a woman that's incarcerated goes through labor and delivery. You know, there's, there's that whole childbirth experience, and that has to be taken into consideration. But I don't think that those laws are written, or they weren't they weren't written for women. But if you go all the way back, though, our, you know, women coming over in, to America and, and, and slaves, they've been, you know, delivering babies, and they've been, you know, pregnant and chained. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it goes deeper than, you know, just saying, like, the, the current policies. Mm-hmm. Delivering, having a baby is already a life or death situation. Right. Yes, so when scary. you're shackled, and then that's really making it worse than what it really should be. It should be a a wonderful experience giving birth to a child, but that's one of the most horrible experiences I've ever experienced. It wasn't great for me. Once the baby's born and you're still shackled down. You can't even see what's going on, huh? You just you can't, can't even hold him. They, do they put the baby on your chest? Yeah, you have one arm, but that's it. One arm? One arm. One arm and one leg. You can't hold a baby, cuddle a baby. Not, not like you want to. As a mother. Not like you and want to. And then they take that baby away from you, right? Yes. And you gone on back to prison, and you hope someone pick up your child that... that in the family in the or family. somebody... Now, the family picked up my child, mm-hmm. but it's been people's experience where their family didn't even get to pick up their child, lost their baby off in the system, and, and had just to, don't know. And didn't know where their baby was, then had to get out and find out where their baby is. And, 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 and all that. And, and had to fight for their baby. Yeah, and had to fight, fight for their baby. to get the baby back. Yeah. Huh? Right. Mm-hmm. Their own flesh their, and their blood. Their own flesh and blood. I, we had somebody else that worked on, on that deal with us, and that was her story, is that, you know, um, she was she was under the impression that her, her family was going to take care of her baby. And, but then the sister got attached to the baby because it was a brand new baby and she didn't want to give the baby back to her. So she had to come home and fight to get her baby back. And you know, that's, that's a, a common experience for people have to fight for their baby. So with that, you know, with having our experiences of um, that leads to 2019 legislation, mm-hmm. 2019 legislation, we could say that, you know, God bless us with the victory. And so now this time we back again and we ready to come back with some with some more bills. 
Mm-hmm. So the first bill that we have that we're working on is HB 2049, and that's the Dignity Act, mm-hmm. Dignity for Incarcerated Women. And one of the things is saying that feminine hygiene products should be provided for free. And you know, They're not provided for free? Sometimes, they, well, they are, and it's, and it's in the budget for them to be provided. However, you have officers that act as if the money is coming out of their pocket. So therefore, they, they treat you any kind of way when you ask for the feminine hygiene products. And they're not giving you enough. They're not giving you enough. When, not not right. enough and when you need it and how much you need. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times women, especially, you know, women that are incarcerated, minority women, we, we make up the largest population in prison. And so minority women, we have our own different set of tish, issues where a lot of times we might have, we might have fibroids mm-hmm. and that causes our flow to be heavier. And so with that, we're going to need more sanitary napkins. So what do you what do? You do you can't do anything, huh? No, unless, you know, like, if you have money, then you can buy yeah. stuff off a of commissary. Off of books? Yes, right. off a of commissary, but there's a large markup. Yes, and you don't have, you can't go somewhere else and get a cheaper price, or you can't use coupons. So you're mm-hmm. either forced to, you know, to deal with, with not having enough. And I can remember a specific occasion where I was in a county jail, and I had asked, I had, um, I had sold my clothes. And I asked the officers for, you know, for a change of, of, of underwear and also for some more pads. And and the woman refused to give them to me. And then she got aggravated. The more I asked, the more aggravated she became. And it's like, how can you be aggravated with me for me just asking for my do, you know, my do right? This is free for you to give it to me. But you act like it's coming out of your pocket. So she, you know, to take it farther, she ended up getting aggravated with me and wrote me up just so, you know, she made something up because in, in prison, there's that abuse of power from the CEOs. It makes them feel like, you know, it makes them feel like they have that power to treat you like you're less than human. So with that, I ended up getting a, a frivolous write-up and I had to prove myself that I wasn't in the wrong, that she had made something up on me. And that, you know, and that, that happens. Like we have to fight, you know, because a lot of times it's just like, you know, you're vulnerable, you're vulnerable because you don't really have a voice. So saying that, you know, it should it's, the products are free, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's the frequency and also the quality. But when I say frequency, you know, it needs to be addressed that, hey, that these are the issues that are out there. And that, you know, you might say that, you know, this is the cause of sanitary napkins and feminine hygiene products, but dignity is free. And just because a woman is incarcerated doesn't mean that she's less than human. That's true. Because bad people, I mean, good people can make bad choices. Mm-hmm. Just because you're in prison doesn't make you a bad person. You know, everybody is, is guilty of making bad choices. So the thing is, for HB 2049 is about restoring dignity to incarcerated women. And, you know, saying that these, the stuff is free, but also the stuff that's free needs to be a quality product. It needs to be health board approved. So, like, live soap. The soap that's in prison, that's free, is often live-based. It's so, going to be irritable to your skin. Yeah. You know, we, we clean clothes with it. It will turn our clothes white. Your socks and your whites. You wash clothes with it. Yeah, I know. I know what live soap is. That's that old live yes. soap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't. I'm not even aware of a place where you can buy it out here. You, you mean yeah, right out here in the in, in, the, in yeah, the world in, in the, the community. community. Mm-hmm. But you know they yeah, go to this, country. But this is what they give it to our incarcerated population. Mm-hmm. And most people don't know about that. So that's the purpose of this legislation is to say that you know that we need we need the quantity that we need and also the quality. But let's let's shift the conversation to talking about incarcerated people. As people, as people first, and well, you know, it's probably a system that don't want you to have those type of uh, of human dignity. dignity. Mm-hmm. They want to strip you uh, from that human that. dignity because they figure you in prison 
mm-hmm. and you don't deserve to have that or have rights. Because mm-hmm, you're left-handed. You know, like, you're left hand. So, right you know, why get a sanitary napkin to her? She don't need one. Mm-hmm. Why get this different type of soap? They don't need that. They're in prison. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of mentality that the system tries to implement. Inhumane system. Mm-hmm. You know, to make you feel... And see, in a lot of cases, that can that's not helping you be be better. Not at that's, all. Yeah. that's hurting you and, it's then, hurting you, you and me- then you're adjusting to that mentality. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you're adjusting to that type of mentality, then you're not bettering yourself as a person. Right, exactly. You you got anger, you mad, you're frustrated, all you often you you contained in a certain space. And and there's nothing to, you know, the programming. A lot of times you can be in there and there's, you know, limited programming. So when you're there dealing with all those emotions and there's no rehabilitation, then what do you do? You know, a lot of times like they look at prison like that's supposed to be a real rehabilitation, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's not. It's not a rehabilitation. Mm-mm, you've got to rehabilitate yourself. Mm-hmm. Not only that, it's a lot of just a lot of drugs off in the penitentiary too, because I've had a couple of family members go in not having a drug problem and come out but with- coming out with a drug problem. Mm-hmm. So it's not you're not helping them none. Right. Especially when they wasn't on drugs and when they went in, but when they come out, they own drugs. Mm-hmm. And so how can they sit up there and not go back to the system when they getting out already on drugs? Mm-hmm. So they not wanting to find a job or they not wanting to do this or they not wanting to do they just want to get high. Mm-hmm. They used to not having to do certain stuff. They not didn't have to work. They didn't have to do this. They didn't have to do this. So if they didn't have to do this type of stuff to better themselves in the penitentiary, so what is they going to come home to? That's not bettering them. That's making them worse than what they going off in. Right, exactly. So, so I that's agree. making a revolving door. And mm-hmm. they wonder why the penitentiary in Oklahoma is, is the highest one, number one rated. That's why. You're not, you're not rehabilitating anyone. No rehabilitation, mm-hmm. huh? Right. They're not, and they're not doing anything to stop the, the cycle. The cycle. Because, right. you know, um, you know for, for one, we have one of the worst education. Right, exactly. And and that goes hand in Oklahoma hand. Oklahoma pretty bad. Yeah, ain't it? all it's the way pretty, around. Yeah, all the mm-hmm. way around. So you know you have the one of the worst education systems. So you have an uneducated, uneducated, uneducated population. Mm-hmm. Then there's limited resources as far as limited opportunity mm-hmm. because you don't have an equal playing field. Mm-hmm. And then our our, my, our minority, our children, are being suspended at a higher rate and being moved around. So that's not being addressed. So then you have kids that are are suffering. You know, for one. You know, the, the women that are incarcerated in Oklahoma is 85% of the women in Oklahoma prisons are mothers. And 67% of those women are primary caretakers. Mm-hmm. Their children are living in the home with them when they, were in, when they went to prison. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we don't address, like, you know, what about the kids? Then the right. cycle continues and the trauma continues to build. Mm-hmm. And Cause, Yeah, because I, I guess... A few things could happen if uh, uh, a lady goes to prison and she has a couple of kids, she goes to prison, and if the family don't step in and take the children, then the children get in the system, mm-hmm. right? right? Mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother thing that she's got to deal with once she gets out of prison. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of women lose their, their children while they're in prison because they say, for instance, they might not get the proper notification about a hearing. Mm-hmm. And they don't have they don't have the resources to be able to fight for their children behind bars, and you know because I I, I witnessed all of that I you know I witnessed mothers who would be in there crying not knowing where their children were, were. or I witnessed 
mothers who, when their children were continuing the the, the cycle, the mm-hmm. lifestyle of crime, uh-huh. then, you know, it was still heartbreaking to see their children following their footsteps. Mm-hmm. Then they also, when you leave them with your family, then your some of your family members is not going to treat their child like, like it's their, their own, own child. Mm-hmm. And so I'm treating... I'm I'm getting treated bad, but the other kids are getting treated mm-hmm. good. So that mm-hmm. what so what is that doing? That's that's messing with my brain and how I'm feeling. And so that's gonna make me go out to these streets and sit up here and do stuff that I don't have no business doing. It's mm-hmm. gonna make me turn to the drugs. It's gonna make me turn to yeah. the gang activity. You can't find no jobs. You yeah, can't you, find no... you can't find no job. You don't have no family support. You're you, mm-hmm. you're not getting that love at home. So you what you turn to? You turn to the streets. In the streets, you think it's showing you love, but it's not. It's showing you just a revolving door. Mm-hmm. So now I'm doing the same thing that my mother did, or I'm doing the same thing that my father did, and I'm getting caught up in the system just like they did. Why? Because you took away my mother. Mm-hmm. So when you take mothers out the home, that plays a big part off in uh, any situation yeah. because mm-hmm. your mother is your everything. That's the glue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the glue to everything. You know, the father might not be there, but that mother gonna always be there. And when you take a child from their mother and they don't know what to do, mm-hmm. especially when you stand with a relative and they're not showing you that motherly love, but they're not buying you no shoes or no clothes. So you they will go. For you. Or, right. or sometimes they might not have the capacity because they, you know, some family members, like, you know, when I left my mother with my child, you know, that place, that place, the financial burden on her. Because oh, yeah? she wasn't used to having to take care of a brand new baby and having these additional costs for taking care of a child. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, um, how you might raise your child is different than what somebody else would do because everybody's not able to do what you would do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so because of that, because, you know, I've experienced that, and this has been our experiences, and I've seen so many different women go through this, we have another bill for to keep mothers with children. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's HB 2019. And what that is, is, is it, it offers judges the discretion it's an alternative to incarceration. So instead of sentencing a woman to prison, it's, it's to say like, hey, it gives the judge the discretion to once he determines that, that a woman is a primary caretaker or a woman or a man, a primary caretaker, it could be a primary caretaker of an elderly and also whether it's a child, it doesn't have to be their child, just a primary caretaker. Then they're saying like, okay, what alternatives can we do to do community-based sentencing that's going to be able to keep families together, that's going to reduce the trauma from the separation, and also, that's going to give the woman a chance to heal and to recover from her substance abuse issues, to deal with the underlying trauma that, that's rooted way, way beneath all of the, the substance abuse. Hmm. Wow. That's a, it's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot to it. So when you're inside those walls and you're incarcerated and um, you count the days, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of time you count, you know what day you're going to be released. Do did the prison system just let you out to the street, or does someone have to come get you? But because uh, uh, I've heard different stories that when you're incarcerated, that uh, some states will just hey open up the big doors and let you out, and you just on the street, and if you ain't got nobody to pick you up, that ain't no they don't trip. You just walk and go. And then I've heard that uh, some prisons give you a hundred dollars. Some money and then let you go. Now in Oklahoma, Oklahoma, you can either have a family member come pick you up, but if you don't have no family member pick you up, then they'll, you give, you a, they'll give you a bus ticket. A bus where, ticket? Where you a voucher? Yeah. They'll drop you off at the bus station with that ticket and send you on the bus. And you and you got to go on by your way. But they're not sending you with nothing. You're not having no cash. 
in your pocket to buy you nothing to eat. You just anything. blank. You ain't got nothing you but a bus you ticket. You ain't got nothing but a bus ticket. And, back, back home, and, huh? And, yeah, and whatever belongings you take with you. And that ain't nothing but some papers. Don't nobody want some, you know, your yeah. clothes or anything like that. So it's prison grade. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. That's all, that's all you have. That's nothing to look forward to. So if the in if a, a prisoner doesn't have a place to go, and he just go to the bus station, he just he just there. He just there. Right. And, he just there. And see, my experience was different. Um, being in in federal prison, you have to have you have to have a place that you're releasing to. You have to show that. And then you also have. What to, if you don't? What if you don't? I mean, you're going to the halfway house regardless. They're majority, gonna send you to the halfway yeah. house. So majority of the time they're gonna yeah, send you to the I, halfway house. I know house. about the halfway house. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you go into the halfway house, but um, also like, you know, but they give you a bus ticket if somebody don't come pick you up. So I had a bus ticket. Now the difference was like there in, in federal, like, but in, in prison period, you can work. And, but you just work for, for the cents on the dollar. Now, when you, now you say when you work, does that money go into your account? Yes, it does. And then the federal prison have, they have private contracts. It's called Unicor. Mm-hmm. Here in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, whatever federal prison, majority of the time, I'm not, a majority of the time, there's, there's private party contracts, the third party contracts. Mm-hmm. Federal prison pay you a little bit better than state But it's, prison. But oh, it's yeah. still not better, though, because, like, if you're getting, if I'm getting paid a dollar an hour, and that's. Mm-hmm. She getting paid a dollar an hour. But you got to work. Mm-hmm. I had to work myself up to that. It had to be, like, you know, for some years to get to a dollar. Mm-hmm. In state penitentiary, you, the, 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 they start you off with $7 a month. So $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7,
But if you don't have no no foundation to go home to, then you just at that bus station looking crazy. But when you at the bus station, though, who's going to hold your hand and help you navigate the next step? Because where I was at least at, at midnight, I, you know, made to Oklahoma City at midnight, I had to be at the bus station at 8 o'clock the next morning to go to my follow-up care, my aftercare for the drug program. And they gave me some halfway directions. So I was walking around lost. You know, the world keeps turning. I'm in a, right. a totally new, different city, not knowing anybody. And I'm just lost. Like, okay, where's the bus station? I was all somewhere. Like, I'm in front of Chesapeake Arena. Like, oh, mm-hmm. it's for mm-hmm. the Thunder play? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, places I've seen on TV, I was able to see it. But, you know, like, nobody said, okay, we're here. You know, like, you come home, it's just this fast-paced world because the world keeps turning. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, – and I had a friend oh, – well, I'm not going to say he was my – yeah, my friend and I, we went to a fast food restaurant, right? And the fast food, we were getting some fast food, and there was a gentleman standing outside, and uh, he say, uh, "Hey man, can y'all help uh, me get something to eat?" I said, "Yeah, man, we'll help you get something to eat." He said, "Yeah, man, I just got out of prison two weeks ago." He said, "Man, and it's hard out here." He said, it's so hard out here, man. I can't, I'm begging to eat every day. And uh, so and we went on in. So I said, order what you want, man. I said, get whatever you want up there. Just get it. So he got a bunch of stuff. And we, I said, come on, sit with us, man. We sat down, the three of us, and we started talking. He says, uh, man, I appreciate you getting me this food, man, so I can eat, man. But I'm going to tell y'all something. I'm going back. He said, man, it's too too much of a struggle out here. Right. He said, man, I'm going back. I, I can't find no job. I ain't got no place to go. I'm mm-hmm. on the streets. I don't know, you know. And I'm going back, and man. And it's so sad. A lot of institutionalized. Yeah, uh-huh. and that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we knew it, that's what was going on. He, was mm-hmm. in. he said, man, I'm going back, man. I'm going to go rob something. I'm getting ready to do something, man, to where I can go back mm-hmm. because I can eat. I got food and I got a place to stay. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm just conditioned. And I ain't to, paying no bills. I ain't paying no bills. And the ain't got to worry about it. The responsibility of life. Don't have to worry about, about nobody else. Huh? Don't have to worry about, about nobody else. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I ain't got to worry about nothing. a lot of nothing. people like that. Yeah. And that's, just, that's a sad reality. So they come out, they go right back because mm-hmm. they so used to that world. That's a whole other world in there. Mm-hmm. And so they so used to that. When they get out, ain't no help. So they feel lost in this world. So it's more easy to go catch a case and go back so I can go back to the familiar to where I don't have to do nothing. Where I can just make a bed and go slave for these people and make a little bit of nothing and get these three hots in a cot, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's a whole other world. So if you're not getting yourself ready for this world, I ain't no programs getting ready for this world or getting you used to society because a lot of stuff have changed. It's been people locked up 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and look how much didn't change over the years. Yeah. Cell phones. They didn't have cell phones when they, some people went in and laptop computers and all this type of stuff. You know, they didn't have no remote control TV and flat screens and stuff like that. And, so and when they push get out, start cards and all that. Mm-hmm. So when they get out, they feel lost because this is a whole other world that they wasn't adapted to, wasn't ready for, didn't nobody prepare them for it. And if you don't got no no backbone or no family members is able to take you in and to help you, then you are lost. So you are going to go back to that world because you're used because to that world. Yeah, right. You're uncomfortable with this world. Right. And mm-hmm. I've seen people that, that have been in prison for like 30 years, and when it's time for them to be released, they are so scared because of the fear of the unknown. I heard about that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
And that's that's a sad reality also. Yeah, don't want to go. Really, huh? You know, right. it kind of reminds you of the, you know, the movie Life. Yeah, Life. Where the guy, you know, takes off running and he sacrifices his life. Right, exactly. Out of the fear of the unknown. I got a cousin. Every time he get ready to get out, he do something. To go back. To, uh, he don't even he make it out. make it home. I mean, he don't even make he it He don't out. even make it out the system, no. huh? He do something inside. And do something inside. Catch a new case. Catch a new case, uh, do something. So where he uh, got to do some more time or they take some days from you and that had a couple more years on, on to your time already because he wasn't ready for this world. This world had changed so much and he's used to that type of world. And that he's type scared. of lifestyle. And, yeah, huh? he's scared. And they don't help you. They don't help you to adjust to this world. They don't. It they, might be some type of programs, but there ain't no programs that teach no you what you need. No rehabilitation. What right, you need to do. What you need to do. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, they, they might have some programs for you to learn, but you're not really learning what you need to learn. They're not teaching you what you need to be taught. They keeping you in their world. They want you to stay in their world. Because they they're getting paid off. Of they're making money so mm-hmm. you can come right. back. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've heard even some some uh, guards even say, "Hey, you'll be back." Oh, they say it. They you know, know. oh, you'll be back. Common. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna be back. So hey, I ain't worried about you because I know you coming back. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that's how they look like. You know, they want to put people in prison like in this box to say that you know everybody is the same. Mm-hmm. That you're this, you know, this 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 horrible person that they didn't think about. You know, the people that you were hurting. So mm-hmm. therefore, you're not worthy to be treated as a human. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to put you in this box, and it's a recycling door, a, re- a revolving door. You're going to keep coming back. And that's how they look at us. Like, oh, you know, you'll be back. Whatever. You'll be back. Yeah, and they would like, every, to, they every, like to think everybody that. Everybody do some type of crime. It's just that some, some people, people get don't caught. get caught. Mm-hmm. You know, even the ones, the guards and all them. How y'all think the drugs and stuff is getting in? Oh, you're right. You're through, through the guards. But who right. they is, they, uh, they belittle they you. Right, but you're doing the same thing I'm doing. You they just smuggling, think they smuggling it all in there, right? They're smuggling it all, and, everything. And how do you think women get pregnant in prison? Yeah, through the guards. Guard. Yes, you know, Mabel Bassett has the highest, the the highest um rate of pregnancy. Not rate uh. of pregnancy, but sex crimes rate. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in prison, a woman in prison is is already vulnerable. Real vulnerable, yeah. Yes, and so you know she's gonna take our opportunities when yes. she see it, huh? When yeah, she's able but, to. But it's the same and, those, time, and those, those prison those, guards know that. Those right. guards, cap, they you know they 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 um they prey on that. Mm-hmm. And so with that, give you, know, you something. Yeah, a little, mm-hmm. you know, a little something. Little, yeah, a little, 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 little. Yeah. Let me bring, bring you in some, some candy. Food. Let me different type of yeah. food. Yeah. What you like to eat? Yeah, what you like to eat? Well, let me. Okay. But that's but that's race though. Yeah, I, but it's right. It's considered right. I've heard I've had somebody on the show before. They said that um they got special treatment mm-hmm. because they were messing with the prison guards. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they the ones who got special treatment. Some of the other girls were mad at mad at her sometimes because mm-hmm. she got this special treatment. Mm-hmm. You know? And then they were all some of the other girls wanted to get in on some of that game. Right. You know, get in on it. But she was real protective and the guard was real protective of her. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that happens. I remember when I first started my sentence, it was one guard that um, he was messing with multiple women on the compound. Mm-hmm. And so when it was said and done, and when it was time for Did him, he, get caught? he got caught, mm-hmm. he got indicted. And when they came to indict him, there was a shootout and he ended up dead. He, oh, now they said he killed it was from his own bullets. We'll never know. But what we do know that there was a rumor circulating on the compound that he had AIDS. And whether or not that's true, nobody really knows. However, just the fact that he was sleeping with multiple women on that compound. Right. So you have women who come into prison and they, you know, they're separated from society. 
and they don't have, you know, like you have a chance to, you know, just be healthy and, and live a healthy lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know, with exercising and, you know, trying to eat decent food because it's not, you know, you're not really giving decent food. But to be subjected to that, you got somebody to come in and sit with multiple women and he bringing in what he got going on on the outside behind those prison walls. Wow. That's one case, you know, that when I first started my sins, a guard that ended up dead. Now, I had, there was another guard that he was messing with a woman, and it was a similar situation where they were real protective of each other. And he was like, oh, I know what I'm doing, and y'all can say what y'all want to say, and this, this, and that. But when he got in, it was, he was about to get indicted. She, they um, used her kids against her. Her sister was raising her kids, and they told her, they had a, a conversation where they had a tape where it was, she was telling him to take the money to her sister. So when they tried to threaten times with her for her sister, then she she rolled on the officer. She told on him, mm-hmm. and he couldn't take that. Mm-hmm. So he just talked all that big boy talk about how he knew what he was doing. But when it was time for him to get indicted, he committed suicide. Mm. And and it was sad because it was like that was the coward's way out. Mm-hmm. I've heard so many stories. It's like crazy. You know, I I heard of um, when I was in Texas, living in Houston. Uh, we knew about a female prison guard mm-hmm. who worked in the men's prison, mm-hmm. and she was having sex with an inmate in there on a regular basis. And what she was she was doing it sometime through the bars, mm-hmm. through the bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I'm talking. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about through the bar. Actually, yeah, this, just post that thing on and the other guys they knew about that she was doing this kind of stuff but they kept kind of hush us because he was getting special privileges and, and he was sharing it with he them he was sharing it with them mm-hmm. you know what I mean and she just backed that thing up to them bars and he go be, do what he's going to do right. and that was that was that and that went on and on until she got busted you know, she eventually got busted. Doing yeah, it, it. it goes both ways. Yeah, women, 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 yeah, women guards yeah, yeah. have sex with men, yeah, yeah. inmates. Yeah, men be having that, that game. Though. That's human nature, though, isn't it? Is that the human nature part of it? That you know, I mean, we're human, right? We 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 don't have. So I always say that attraction, but then you also have to have that mental, you know, that that mental, mental strength. strength to hang to stay away mm-hmm. from it, you know. Right. right. Yeah. You're gonna have some the strong, but you're gonna have them ones this week. It's gonna break down for it's it. It's gonna huh? break down. Yeah. It's gonna yeah. break down. Yeah, men, men and women. Yeah, it go both gonna, ways. Well, yeah, it do. Wow, and um, I know a lot of stuff. You know, I've heard so many stories of things happening on the inside of those walls and stuff like that, and. Um, it's. Um, I think that the, it needs to, prison reform needs to take place in it, a lot of areas. It does, and when prison we, reform. Yeah, mm-hmm. reform mm-hmm. and reform now. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And and because it needs to take place in so many areas, and specifically, it's right here in Oklahoma. That's why Block Builders has joined forces with Cut Fifty. Cut Fifty is a bipartisan is a bipartisan organization that their goal is to cut incarcerate mass incarceration mm-hmm. in half within the next ten years. So on March 5th is the, the largest day of action, and it's called the Empathy Day. Okay. And that's what we're doing, what we're doing now. We're really people who are directly impacted, and we share our stories to add the human element, where we humanize and say, like, you know, hey, I'm the drug dealer that made a mistake. Hey, I'm the drug dealer that went from breaking laws to making laws. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the one that, you know, regardless of, you know, what part of the problem I perpetrated, then now I'm part of the solution, and I'm here to, to build my community. 
So we raise our voices, but also, you know, we'll have youth involved, you know, raising their voices, the kids who are, that are impacted, they have incarcerated parents, that we come together at, at City Hall on March 5th. Oh, sounds good. Yes, we come to, you know, where they, they don't have to do a public hearing for us. You don't have to tell us that we can do a public hearing, because we're going we're gonna to bring it to y'all and be right, right outside on the steps at noon on March 5th. March 5th. Largest day of action. We're, we're participating. It's over 40, it's 40 other cities and states that are involved in that. Really? Yes. Even though I've been incarcerated twice, I have turned my life around. Mm -hmm. I have things going on in the community as far as giving back and reaching mm -hmm. out and mm -hmm. different with different organizations, teaming up. Mm -hmm. What uh, made you do that? What made, what all of a sudden you got sick and tired of just being involved or something in that? Because I had to turn my life around too. I, I mean, mean, we all do. I didn't want to be a, another, I didn't want to be a revolving door. I didn't want to keep going back in the system. I didn't, so I end up, I end up, um, I end up opening my own business, and I opened up my own business, started selling clothes mm -hmm. to different friends. Started out with two trash bags, mm -hmm. knocking on doors, and selling stuff. And yeah, selling the trunk, the trunk. Mm -hmm. trunk, and then from the trunk, I went from the corner, and then from the corner, I went to the flea market, and then from the flea market, I went to a building. Mm -hmm. And so then I was just really just blessed, and I was determined not to go back. And from me having a clothing store, I ended up doing T-shirts. And then after I did T-shirts, I ended up becoming a, a Metro PCS owner. Mm -hmm. So you got to be willing to do what you need to do to not go back. You know, I'm not, I didn't want to keep going through that revival, though. I didn't sit there and saw too many friends and family members in and out of prison. Mm -hmm. So I had to make a change, and I made a change so other people in my community can see that it can be done. Mm -hmm. And I did it without selling drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a, a major factor. You know, I can do it without selling drugs, and I had to show my people that it could be done. Mm -hmm. So I do have a lot of people that look up to me and that is inspired to do what I did. So for you got to make a change within your community you got to want to change a lot of people don't want to change you talk about changing but they don't want to change mm -hmm. so it's some positive stuff going on even though a lot of the prison is impacted and i have went twice i have changed my life around mm -hmm. you know it's not all just been bad and me sit up being ain't out of prison ain't got no education i got a ged and i accomplished a lot a lot of people feel like you got a have money or you got to have a high school diploma or you got to go to college and no mm -hmm. i got a ged and i started from the bottom and i didn't have no money then did no bank give me no loans did no family give me no loans i had to work for what i had and it wasn't easy but i did stay focused and determined to continue i i have a dream just like everybody else i want a business i want to a nice life, a nice car, a nice home, just like everybody else. But I knew it wasn't going to be given to me. But I also knew that I had to take the step up to what what, what was I going to do to get it. And because the street life wasn't going to give it to me. Because if I continue being up in the streets, then I wasn't going to do nothing but continue going back to be a number. That's right, being a number. Well, we've been on the Bobby Eaton Show, and I want to thank you guys for tuning in. And uh, we'll be here on Wednesday night, so... Until the next time, have a good one. It's time for the Bobby Eaton Show. Yeah. Giving you information you'll